Hello, everybody. Eric Grenier here, and welcome to the ninth episode of The Writ Podcast. We're in week two of this election campaign, and it is heating up as the polls get tighter. One of the places where we've seen some real movement is in Ontario. So to chat about the view from Queen's Park, I'm joined today by my guest, Sabrina Nanji. Sabrina is a journalist covering Ontario politics and is a fellow Substacker. She writes the Queen's Park Observer. You can find a link to her newsletter in the show description. Hey, Sabrina. Hey, Eric. So first off, why don't you just tell us a little bit about uh, the Queen's Park Observer? Yeah, so it's a newsletter that basically covers everything going on at Queen's Park, um, from what's going on in the House and committees to the biggest headlines of the day. It's basically for political nerds like us. That's a term of endearment. Uh, and we we just cover all the, the inside baseball. Um, it's It's been doing great so far. I'm really encouraged by people signing up. Uh, a lot of MPPs and staff are reading it. It's for everyone from like public servants to lobbyists to just people who want to know what's going on at the legislature. Yeah, that that would be me. I've been really enjoying it. It's uh, it's I feel like I just need to read the newsletter and then I'm good. Uh, I wish there was one in every province. That would be very useful for me. Um, So, okay, so let's delve into this federal campaign and primarily the view from Ontario, because I'm very curious about how the provincial and the federal parties are cooperating or how they're viewing this election, uh, particularly for the provincial parties, since the Ontario campaign is scheduled for June. So it's it's just around the quarter. So we'll go through it party by party. And uh, we'll start with the PCs. So Doug Ford, he was a big part of the Liberal campaign back in 2019. But it was only this week that we really first heard his name being mentioned by Justin Trudeau. Uh, so what's your sense of how involved the PCs want to get into this campaign and, and the kind of help that they are giving to the federal Conservatives? Um, well, you're right that it's it's week two and we've only now just heard Doug Ford's name being raised by Justin Trudeau, where the last time around in 2019, uh, Trudeau was bringing him up every every chance that he could. Uh, Doug Ford wasn't doing so hot in the polls himself at the time. Uh, he was basically seen as toxic by the, the conservatives as well. Andrew Scheer, the conservative leader at the time, uh, wasn't campaigning with Doug Ford around Ontario. They actually brought in Jason Kenney from Alberta to come around. So uh, we, we did see Trudeau this week kind of give Ford this backhanded compliment in a way um, where he, he raised the specter of the premier to kind of diss Aaron O'Toole, you know, saying that uh, they've got to work on things like childcare and, and long-term care, and they need provincial support for that. And things are only going to get worse uh, if it's Aaron O'Toole sitting across from Doug Ford. Uh, there's There's been this theory around Ontario, it's called the Underhill Theory, that uh, the province tends to be the opposite of Ottawa, politically speaking. So when we have a conservative government in power at Queen's Park, chances are there's a liberal government in power on the Hill. Um, and I'm sure that Trudeau and Ford might be thinking of this uh, as well. They we, We've had reports that there's this informal truce between them this time around that they won't be beating up on each other uh, as much. We, we haven't really heard much from Doug Ford at all uh, or his ministers. They've been laying very low, but there are a lot of good reasons why they wouldn't want to um, pick a fight necessarily in this campaign. You know, the, the premier is still dealing with a pandemic. He needs a lot of cash um, to uh, get get the province out of it. He's made a lot of ambitious promises. You, you mentioned that we're not too far out from a provincial election uh, next June. You know that the feds have promised cash for Hamilton, for example, transit in Hamilton, I should say. 
So there's a lot of reasons why they would want cooperation. Um, I, I do think that the, the, the conservatives are going to be laying low because they are kind of focused on their own thing right now. And I instead of uh, Ford being the toxic one this time around, uh, Ford's camp, I'm sure, might be thinking that uh, Aaron O'Toole might be the one to do damage to them if he botches this election. Uh, then people might be looking at, at Doug Ford as, you know, are, are the conservatives viable in Ontario? Um, it, it actually feels like the PCs have been a bit in re-election mode themselves. Uh, one thing I thought was interesting is that they, compared to the other provincial parties, they haven't really let up on the fundraising side of things, except uh, when it comes to events that Ford himself is attending. So there were these string of uh, provincial fundraisers featuring the premier uh, leading up to the campaign. But ever since then, it's been crickets. They're still doing uh, email fundraising, though. They're, they're making calls, you know, just this week and last week on, on Tuesday, the calls from their supporter services were going out. We all heard about those uh, invoice mailers that they got right. in trouble for. And it, it's interesting anyway, I'll, I'll just, you know, quickly to, to wrap up on the fundraising side, because the other provincial parties have kind of uh, fallen back on that front. I guess the idea is that, uh, you know, money is tight for everybody these days. And if you want to donate federally, you might not be donating provincially. And obviously campaigns cost money and, and the federal parties need cash right now. Like the, the liberals, for example, Provincially, they don't have a fundraiser uh, event planned until a week after the campaign. So uh, they, they are laying low, but there's still some work happening be behind the scenes for the conservatives. And we, we haven't really seen Ford or his ministers um, going up for O'Toole or, or, or the conservative candidates knocking on doors. Uh, if they are, they're not really posting it on social media, which we're seeing the other parties doing. Right. You, you bring up that uh, theory of, of Ontario federal politics, which is a very interesting one. And, you know, and it does hold up. If you look past uh, the history of, of elections, it is that pretty much nine out of 10 times, um, you know, it's the opposite party. But it does bring up a weird kind of perspective that it's hard to imagine Ontario PCs would be thinking that a loss for O'Toole would be good for them. But I guess in a way, it might be easier for them to get re-election if they have a Justin Trudeau in Ottawa, who maybe his popularity will be bruised based on where the polls are now. And maybe Doug Ford doesn't contrast with him so badly. And if there was Aaron O'Toole in Ottawa, maybe a lot of voters would think that it would be a good idea to have a different government in Toronto. It's a, it's a weird dynamic. Yeah. And, and you can kind of take from that what you want if you're the electorate, right? Like you might think that, uh, conservatives at the provincial level could could balance out uh, liberals on the federal level or you might think if uh, you know Ford could be a good foil to Trudeau um, or that Ford could you know work really well with Trudeau so you can kind of if you're a voter you can kind of take um, whatever angle you want from that but it, it is interesting I mean uh, and for Trudeau to be painting this picture of what what would it mean if it was O'Toole and Ford um, figuring things out as we come come out of the pandemic? We saw him bring up vaccine mandates as well, kind of trying to spin that that even you know Ford has a better look than O'Toole when really their policies are kind of the same. That they both they both I mean generally speaking they both support um, you know regular testing for the unvaccinated. Uh, and so, so I think it's interesting that the liberals are kind of taking advantage or trying to capitalize on this weird relationship. And uh, 
I was just reading in the newsletter today about how the Ontario PCs, they're seem, seemingly signaling that they're not thinking about having a vaccine mandate or a passport kind of thing here in Ontario, whereas Quebec and BC are moving in that direction uh, in a way that might give a little bit more ammunition to the federal liberals to point out that conservatives in Ontario, like Doug Ford and Aaron O'Toole, um, you know, don't want to have these vaccine passports and, and make everybody safe. So I, ca I can feel it just kind of fueling that that debate for maybe a little bit longer. Yeah, it's I mean, it's certainly become a wedge issue and that has definitely seeped in um, at Queen's Park, too. I mean, we even saw, uh, you know, the premier have to kick out one of his MPPs, a longtime MPP um, in Chatham, Kent, who was actually <laughs> spotted at uh, uh, P PPC yes. event, um, a federal uh, candidates event on the weekend. He, he stressed that it wasn't an endorsement, but he was just there to tell his story. Uh, but still, he got a lot of support. So, I mean, yeah, the, the vaccine mandates is definitely becoming uh, a bigger issue. You know, the premier has ruled it out. They're, they're still sticking to their line that they're going to piggyback on the federal system. Um, it's not needed right now, but with, with, this pressure coming and the other provinces bringing in systems of their own, I think that uh, the debate is not over yet in Ontario. Let's move over to the New Democrats because they're the official opposition in Queen's Park. So Jagmeet Singh, he comes from provincial politics. He was an Ontario MPP before he made the jump to federal politics. What's the relationship between the Ontario NDP and Andrew Horvath and Singh? Yeah, I mean, at like my experience with with them is when uh, Singh was at Queens Park a couple of years ago, and he was Andrea's deputy. And um, you know, anecdotally, it, it didn't seem like they're like they always got on the best. Uh, you know, obviously, Jinmeet is a star, and he is very popular even uh, federally, like himself. If and I think that Andrea has kind of had the same experience like um, personally those leaders are very popular even when their parties aren't as popular um, poll wise so I, I think that they could kind of uh, capitalize or, or you know ride each other's coattails when it comes to popularity I know they were just in Hamilton this week just yesterday actually doing a, a photo op um, in Hamilton obviously Steel Town is a very competitive place uh, where Andrea represents has represented for a very long time now um, and I, I think that Andrea could use some of that some of that popularity and you know Singh brings this fresh vibe to the party Andrea has been leader for over 10 years now there's there's already talk about you know who's going to replace her um, she doesn't seem like she wants to go anywhere and, and definitely, you know, at the party level, when they do their leadership reviews, she's always getting, you know, over 90% support, but, you know, she might want to hang up her hat after more than 10 years on the job doing this, uh, and depending on, on their showing next year, I don't know if new Democrats would be as happy with Andrea, if she loses, uh, official opposition status. And, and the liberals pick up or lose seats to the liberals uh, kind of thing. But I, I do think that, that they, the NDP, we've seen them not be shy about campaigning with their federal counterparts. Uh, I thought it was interesting this week, Marit Stiles, someone who has been, whose name has been floated when people talk, talk about potential successors to Andrea Horvath. She represents in Davenport, which is also, you know, a competitive race federally too. She was actually at a campaign launch event for one of the NDP candidates all the way over in Scarborough. So that was kind of interesting because we're used to seeing 
candidates or, or sorry, MPPs campaign with candidates in their own ridings. Uh, the NDP is doing that this week too. Peter Tabins out in Toronto, Danforth, knocking on doors for the federal candidate this week, but they kind of got Marit, uh, a high profile provincial person to pump up a candidate in Scarborough. So I guess that might be a sign where the NDP wants to focus their support or even provincially, you can kind of tell who the stars are. I'm sure it for the federal New, New Democrats uh, campaigning with uh, NDP MPPs from Ontario, it's a reminder that, um, you know, we can actually win here. It's not that, uh, you know, there's, for example, here, uh, I'm in Ottawa Centre. This is uh, Joel Hardin's riding uh, provincially, but at the federal level, it's been pretty safe for the Liberals the last couple of elections. Um, so, yeah, seeing that kind of synergy between the two parties, it's interesting because it's in a pretty big contrast to, for example, in Alberta or Saskatchewan, where the provincial parties don't really want to get too close to the federal NDP. But in Ontario, uh, it does seem like the two parties are are pretty friendly. <laughs> yeah. And you can even hear Singh when he talks about um, some of his shinier platform promises. Like he talks a lot about um, rent control and long-term care. And obviously those are issues that you know, all, all the parties are, are discussing and think are important, but these are kind of in the purview of provincial jurisdiction. So yeah, in Ontario, they, they haven't really shied away from connecting with their, their federal counterparts here. Uh, we even saw Jigmeet had even stopped by in Essex and the Windsor area yesterday. That's another interesting spot. Provincially, obviously the, you know, the area is kind of an orange block, but uh, it's one spot where the, the PCs actually are, are gunning for provincially, especially the riding of Essex. Like they think that they can steal those seats back from uh, the, or, or steal those seats from the NDP. And so I think that that was also kind of interesting that that's another spot where Singh went to. I mean, of course I'm seeing everything through the, the lens of a provincial election coming up next spring. Well, and I'm sure, though, that the NDP looks at where uh, the Ontario NDP did well back in 2018 as places where they could have some some growth. And, and it does it is also a reminder that in some parts of the province, particularly in, in southwestern Ontario, it is in some cases an, an orange blue fight rather than, you know, an orange red or, or blue red fight. So it's a good reminder of that. But let's let's move on to the liberals. It seems like, you know, we're talking about two very, very different parties in terms of their positions, right? We have a governing liberal party in Ottawa and a provincial party that doesn't have official party status or does it in the Ontario legislature. I think they were just at the mark, weren't they? They do not have status. Um, They they were at the mark. They're actually at the old mark now, but the conservatives uh, a couple of years ago had had changed the status. So instead of eight seats, you need 12 seats now, they're at eight seats. Um, so, so not recognized officially. Right. So what kind of help can the Ontario Liberals give the federal Liberals in this campaign? Or are they just kind of hoping to coast a little bit on the more popular federal party? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's, I think it's probably more of the latter there. But I do think that the Liberals probably have the most to gain. Uh, the provincial Liberals have the most to gain in, in the federal campaign here. Uh, you're right, they they don't have much of a profile. Although we do see that they are doing well in the polls compared to the NDP. Like provincially, the NDP has failed to capitalize on some of the mistakes that the PCs have made during this pandemic. Um, And we see that there, sometimes it's the conservatives and the liberals that are neck and neck or the liberals doing polling better than the NDP. And that's, well, I mean, it's kind of embarrassing if you're the official opposition here. Uh, and the, the liberal leader, Stephen Del Duca, doesn't even have uh, a seat in the House. So 
I think their focus mainly is to build up their profile. Um, not a lot of people know Steven Del Duca and the people that do don't know very good things about him. Right. Um, they, they know things about, you know, uh, questionable ghost stations in his writing or uh, a pool that, that might have bypassed uh, conservation uh, protocols. So I, we have seen Del Duca out on the stump. Uh, he was already doing that even for some of his candidates when they were doing nomination races. I, I would need to double check if he's been to Ottawa Centre, but he was in Don Pelly East. Um, we have seen other MPPs, John Frazier, uh, uh, out on canvassing in Ottawa Centre for Yasser Nakbi, the, the, the Liberal candidate there. Um, we saw Del Duca in the 905 this week. He's, he's sort of been piggybacking on the federal candidates, uh, and, and it's a way for people to get to know him. And it's, it's interesting to see which ridings he's picking and which candidates are, are going out with him. I've seen a lot of liberal candidates, you know, pressing the flesh with, with their federal counterparts in ridings that, uh, obviously the liberals think they can pick up. So I mentioned the 905, uh, we saw Nathan Stahl, one of their high profile candidates, former science table member in Ontario, um, high profile doctor running in Toronto, St. Paul's. He was out, uh, with, with Carolyn Bennett at the farmer's market the other day, he, uh, here in St. Paul's, like I, I live in St. Paul's, I should add that. And, and I think that, it's a good way for them to, 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 to show people who they are, you know, um, get to know the names, kind of get to know their faces. I know that, you know, June is, is still a ways away, but they're going to definitely be using that to, to build up their profile, which is hard to do for an opposition party, any opposition party in a pandemic, you know, there's, there's really no room for opposition voices, although, it's getting a little easier these days because we haven't heard much from, from the conservatives and the premier, but no one really wants to hear from an opposition party in a pandemic. You know, it, it's kind of all about what the governing party is doing and it's really all eyes on the government. So I think that the, the liberals have the most to pick up here. Uh, we haven't, it seems to be more on the side of the provincial liberals than it is the, the federal liberals. Like I, I haven't seen, uh, I, I don't know if we will see Justin Trudeau mentioning Stephen Del Duca at any point. Um, we, we had seen the last time around uh, him and Kathleen Wynn together. So I, I think another, another um, interesting liberal tidbit is uh, a little romance on the campaign trail. Uh, Amanda Samard, who used to be a conservative, uh, she represents Glengarry Prescott Russell She's actually been canvassing for Yvonne Baker, a former MPP, current MP, uh, liberal in Etobicoke Center. They're actually dating and they've been canvassing together. So it's just, it's just been a, a very, I mean, who doesn't love a little romance uh, at the doors? It, it's interesting. You, you mentioned Kathleen Wynne when she gave a lot of help to Justin Trudeau. It, it, it is kind of a reversal of fortunes now that while Kathleen Wynne was able to uh, help out Justin Trudeau in a previous campaign, it's now Justin Trudeau who is the one who could help out the Ontario Liberal leader in this campaign. Uh, let's uh, move on to the, the Greens. We'll finish there. Now, you, you mentioned you're in Toronto, so I'm guessing you're seeing a lot of Annamie Paul because um, <laughs> she yeah. doesn't seem to want to venture outside of the city. But Annamie Paul is from Ontario, obviously, and I've seen her with uh, Mike Schreiner, the Ontario Green leader. Uh, so maybe there are some closer links than there might have been before when the Greens seem to be much more of a BC-focused party. But is there a lot of concern at the provincial level that what's happening to the federal Greens could rub off on the Greens' chances in the provincial election next year? Well, it's interesting. I mean, every time um, 
Schreiner, Mike Schreiner, the Ontario Green leader, gets asked about the drama happening with the federal party. He, he just kind of tries to brush it off and talks about how, you know, the Ontario party is its own thing. <laughs> so it, it, he, he's not very blatantly distancing himself, but I'm sure he doesn't want uh, people to make that connection. But him and Annemi Paul, they, they've done events together, even at Queen's Park, you know, well before the campaign. Uh, and he has been out, you're right, in Toronto Centre, where they're, they're focusing all their, their efforts to get Annemi Paul that seat uh, in, in the Liberal stronghold. Uh, so I guess we'll see how it goes. But that strategy did actually work for the Ontario Greens in 2018. Um, and that's what got Mike Schreiner elected to the first ever seat for the party in Guelph. You know, I had talked to them in 2018 and they said that they were pouring all their resources uh, to to Shriner to get that one seat and it paid off. It, it worked for them. You know, Shriner is always punching above his weight as, as the only green in the house. Um, he's got thoughtful responses. He's always quick with a punchy quote, you know, us reporters love that. Um, you know, he, he gets a lot of respect even from the government benches. So uh, that really paid off for him. Um, I, I do think that they're going to probably have to face some questions about the, the leadership drama, you know, they, they might get asked about that, uh, but we haven't seen that happening at the provincial level. So I think they might be able to, to skirt by that or hope that people forget about those things by the time 2022 comes around and they can maybe pick up some more seats. Yeah, uh, of course, if Annemie Paul does win the seat, then suddenly this is a great election for the Greens in Ontario and, and it changes the dynamic. But uh, I think that might be tough. Um, so I'll just finish on this and, uh, you know, you can give me your quick prediction here. Is Doug Ford going to stay hidden for the rest of this campaign or, or is he going to come out and say something, do you think? <laughs> oh, man, that's a great question. I mean, I it's a good question. And I obviously hope that he comes out because I've got a lot of questions for him and we haven't heard much. Um, but, but I do think that we might see him closer to, uh, closer to the end. Like it's still early days and I don't know if we'll see much formal campaigning with, with O'Toole. Uh, we might see more, more ministers out on the stump, you know, on their weekends, knocking on doors, that type of thing. Um, but I, I did think it was interesting this week we saw him uh in thunder bay and this is a, he he posted a, a photo op in thunder bay where he was with greg rickford who who represents in kenora and it actually got me thinking of 2019 because just sort of at the end of the campaign uh, doug who had been sidelined for most of it ended up going to Kenora and it seemed to give a little bit of a boost to Eric Malillo who uh, ended up winning you know he, he eked out this surprise win in Kenora a former Rickford staffer um, conservative MP who's running for re-election now and he had taken the seat from the longtime liberal who had represented there so it, it kind of seemed to us that after being sidelined for the whole campaign that maybe Ford could have given a little boost to the conservative candidate up north. And obviously he was in Thunder Bay this week, not Kenora, but it's a neighboring riding. So I just thought it was interesting that the premier was, was up north this week when he's been laying low for this whole campaign so far. So I think, you know, we might not see any blatant canvassing, but he might be doing some stuff on the down low. Yeah, well, uh, Ontario is always a key battleground. Uh, so <laughs> I know you'll be keeping an eye out for where Doug Ford is. Maybe he'll have some very targeted 
targeted uh, spots to help out a local conservative candidate. So uh, I know you'll be following the race from uh, your listening post out in Toronto. So uh, thanks for sharing your insights, Sabrina. And I strongly recommend uh, Sabrina's newsletter. It's just jam-packed with everything that's going on at the Ontario legislature, and uh, it'll be an invaluable resource ahead of next year's provincial election. And as a special offer to listeners and readers of The Writ, if you can subscribe to Queen's Park Observer and save 25% off the subscription fee for the first year, and so just enough to take you through the 2022 campaign, you can find a link to that special offer in the show description, and uh, you'd be wise to take advantage of it. So thanks again, Sabrina, and uh, have a good rest of the campaign. Thanks so much, Eric. All right. Well, let's get through the polls uh, of the past few days. And there's been a lot of them. We've actually heard from seven different pollsters just in the last few days. And um, they're showing pretty much the exact same thing. So just to let you know, I'm recording this on Wednesday at about one o'clock, one thirty. So I'm talking about the polls that came out primarily on Tuesday, some of them on Wednesday morning. And the numbers they show, as I said, they are pretty consistent. Uh, So we've had polls from Nanos, Main Street, Ecos. Those are the three rolling polls that we're getting every single day. Uh, We also saw some numbers from Ipsos, from the Angus Reid Institute, from Leger and Abacus. So so running the gamut from online pollsters to IVR to telephone. The numbers for the Liberals are primarily down. Uh, They've been polling anywhere from 31 to 36 percent, but the consensus seems to be somewhere around 33 or 32 percent. The Conservatives there uniformly going up. In most cases, it's only a point or two, but uh, they do seem to be somewhere around the 31 to 33% range. And then you have the New Democrats mostly going up. Most polls have them on the rise. Mostly somewhere around the 19 to 22%. And then you have the Bloc Québécois still polling really in the high 20s in Quebec. That hasn't really shifted that much, although their numbers do seem to be stabilizing. There was some indication that maybe their numbers were softening going into the second week, but it looks like they're getting back to that mid to high 20 range. The Greens are primarily going down. Um, Their numbers, after picking up a little bit the outset of the campaign, do seem to be getting a bit worse. They're now more likely in the 3 to 5% range rather than having some polls that put them at the 6, 7, or 8 and then finally, the People's Party, uh, they have been polling anywhere from 2 to 6%, and most polls, though not all, have them actually increasing a little bit. So they are an interesting factor to keep an eye on. Now, the movement that we've seen isn't exactly dramatic. Now, we shouldn't say that things are really, really shifting at this stage of the campaign, uh, because on average, we're seeing that the Liberals have gained, I should say, lost 1.4 percentage points on average in across all of these pollsters whereas the Conservatives have gained uh, about 1.3 points. Altogether, that's a swing of almost three percentage points between the Liberals and the Conservatives, which is why we're now talking about a very close race. But, you know, we're still not in, I would say, dramatic momentum mode. Uh, If we're looking at those uh, numbers for the uh, Conservatives in Ontario, you know, a lot of the polls are now putting them somewhere around 32 to 36 percent. Uh, before the campaign, they were usually in the low 30s to sometimes in the high 20s, and the Liberals had a 10-point leader more. But instead, we're actually starting to see some polls where the Conservatives are ahead in Ontario. That's a big development if that holds, because the Liberals weren't counting on a lot of gains in Ontario, but they were counting on holding what they had. So if they drop uh, this many seats in Ontario, it doesn't really matter how well they're doing in Quebec. And they are doing well in Quebec. They're still polling 35 37% in Quebec, the Bloc Québécois, somewhere around uh, you know, the 27 29% range. So the Liberals are in a good spot to pick up some seats in Quebec. But it looks like they're actually going to lose some seats in Ontario, at least where things stand now. 
course, everything can change, but uh, this is not where things are, are supposed to be going for the Liberals at this stage. Uh, this is not going well for them. I'd still say that they're still the odds-odd and favorite to win the most seats, because in most polls, they are still ahead in Ontario. And the way the vote is distributed, the fact that they still lead in Atlantic Canada, have places for gains in Quebec, still likely holding, if not gaining, a, a seat or two in British Columbia, um, the Liberals still have that ingrained seat advantage. I wrote earlier this week how the Conservatives really need to be ahead by three points, four points, before they can think that things are going to go well enough that uh, they can win the most seats. So that advantage is still there for the Liberals. The question is whether it's going to hold, um, because if the Liberals continue to drop in Ontario, then the seat math goes out the window. Then the Conservatives can maybe win more seats than the Liberals um, if they start building up a lead in Ontario. It's helping the Conservatives that Aaron O'Toole has had a good start to the campaign, and the polling does suggest that he's had a good start. Angus Reid Institute and Abacus Data, on average, they're showing that his favorability ratings, his positive ratings, have increased by an average of about five points. The same as Jugmeet Singh, but Singh was already starting at a high level. So Singh is getting his higher numbers as the campaign is going on. Uh, what's going to happen with the NDP is a question here. Uh, but clearly, things are not going well for the Liberals. I wouldn't say that things are going to the point where they're losing this campaign. But we do just seem to be heading towards the same kind of race as it was in 2019, where it's just the Liberals and the Conservatives neck and neck, and no one really starts building up uh, some significant momentum. Because even for the Conservatives, while they are up, they're not soaring. It's just a couple points here and there, uh, getting to that range of 31-32%, more or less where they were under Stephen Harper and just a little bit behind where they were under Andrew Scheer in the last couple elections. So still something to look at what's going to happen with these numbers whether the Liberals are going to continue to drop down or if they're hitting maybe their current floor uh, and whether the Conservatives are going to be able to open up the kind of lead over them that they would need to have a, a, an advantage in the seat count. Uh, we're not seeing that just yet. And uh, my suspicion, I would suspect that we might continue to see these numbers with the Conservatives and the Liberals scoring somewhere between 30-34% uh, for the next couple of weeks and everything's going to come down to what's going to happen in those debates. But uh, clearly, this is not the start of the campaign that the Liberals were expecting, and it is turning out to be a far more interesting one uh, than maybe we were expecting. Before moving on to the questions and answers, if you're looking for more detail on where the polls are this week, you can take a look at the website, therit.ca. I have an article up on Wednesday about uh, really breaking down the polls in detail and also talking about the role that the mail ballots might play. Uh, I think that is something we're going to be talking about. Question from Jim Weidrich. Should we spend the rest of the campaign just focused on Ontario polls? How are national numbers truly meaningful? Uh, you know, that's a good question, because the way that uh, the electoral geography works in Canada, the national numbers can only tell you so much. And it really does depend on where support is coming from to really have an impact on the outcome of the election. If you think about a place like uh, Alberta, if the Conservatives pick up 20 points in Alberta, that is worth about two points nationwide. Uh, so while it might make a big difference in terms of the gap between the Liberals and the Conservatives, it won't really make that big of a difference in the seat count. But it doesn't all just come down to Ontario, because you have to keep an eye on what's happening in uh, British Columbia. There's a lot of seats up for grabs there, and it's a three-way race, and it, it'll have a big impact on the results. You got to look at Quebec. Quebec is huge for the Liberals. If the Liberals aren't able to keep up their support in Quebec, then it really doesn't happen. It really doesn't matter what's happening in Ontario. They're not going to win the election. Jeff Blackman asks: The debate commissioner excluded the PPC based on an average of polls. If you weighted the snapshots they used by pollster ratings, would 
that have put them plus or minus 4%. I wanted to get to this question to uh, talk just a little bit about the fact that Maxim Bernier and the People's Party uh, will not be at the leaders' debate because Bernier did not meet the threshold of 4% in an average of polls that was used by the debate commissioner. First off, I think the criteria that they set and the way that they were looking at the polls and how they were going to use them, I thought I, th- I thought it was well done. And so I don't have any um, thing to say about whether that threshold was appropriate or whether the way that they um, looked at the polls was appropriate. I think in both cases it was. If I weighted the um, the polls by uh, the various factors that are weighted in, in, for example, the CBC poll chart, it would not have had a difference. At the time that the uh, debate commissioner made that call, I think that they said the average support for the PPC was about 3.3 percentage points. At the same time, the poll tracker, which does have an estimate for the PPC, uh, only had them at, I think, around 3.5. So uh, it would not have made a big difference. But there has been a couple updates this week that have put the PPC at 4%. So, you know, it's all about timing. Jenny Armstrong, she asks, we've heard the word momentum a lot lately. What does it mean to pollsters? And is it true, i.e. backed up by recent evidence, that parties or leaders only get it once in a campaign. And momentum is an interesting thing in politics and polling because there's not really a reason why momentum should exist. It's not like voting intentions is an infectious disease that just eventually spreads across the population. So I've, I've often heard uh, people deny that momentum is an actual thing, that because you have momentum doesn't mean that your numbers are going to keep growing. I think it's it's something that is separated from the polling from the reality of it. Because a party is doing better in the polls from one day to the next doesn't mean that it should continue to be doing better in the polls in one one day or the next. I think if polling was completely private, if we didn't hear about anything, if the media was not aware of whether a party was doing well or not in the polls, uh, or whether a campaign felt that it was doing well, and everybody was just covered in the exact same way, that momentum wouldn't really be that much of a thing. There could be the impact of you know, word of mouth and people talking about things and uh, and support for a party kind of growing, the kind of discussion you hear surrounding um, discussions around the family dinner table over the holidays or over Thanksgiving, these things that uh, may or may not actually be true. Uh, but it is a, in, in one of the factors. But I think where the where momentum really comes in is that good polls begets good political results that the media starts to cover you a bit better, that maybe your donations start to pour in better. When an advertisement is on the screen and people have heard that you're the party that is seemingly on the rise, they might be a little bit more willing to pay attention to it. I think those are the factors that really have an impact on momentum. Think about what happened in 2015. Now, we always hear that Justin Trudeau and the Liberals started that campaign in third place, and they did. What you often don't hear is that for the preceding two years, they had been in first place in the polls. When Justin Trudeau became leader of the Liberals in April 2013, the Liberals had a huge surge in voting intentions. And from April 2013 to almost April 2015, the Liberals were leading in the polls. They were the preferred party. Justin Trudeau was the preferred prime minister. uh, And it looked like the Liberals were on track to a big win. So the fact that the Liberals were able to come back during the 2015 campaign is not nearly as remarkable as it might seem in context of the fact that for the preceding two and a half years, most Canadians, or at least the the most Canadians, were willing to vote for the Liberals. And so they really just returned to that position that they had been at before the campaign. What happened 
in 2015 is that the New Democrats, they won in Alberta, gave a big boost to Tom Mulcair and the NDP, and suddenly they were in first place in the polls. I'm not sure why an Alberta election victory boosted the federal NDP, but it does give you an indication that there might not have been as much behind these pre-election movements in the polls as one might think. So Trudeau was able to use that long campaign in 2015 to regain the kind of support that he had before the election and was the one with momentum. So, you know, the question of whether you can only have it during a campaign or not, I think that the period outside of a campaign can matter. Think back to 2019, the Greens had momentum going into that campaign. That was something that was real. It was showing up in the polls. It was showing up in provincial election results. And the Greens could have capitalized on it, but they didn't. And so their momentum became negative momentum. They started dropping in the polls to the benefit of the New Democrats. So I, I really do think it, it is something that is dependent on the campaign, on the context of uh, the different leaders and what did come before it. Um, but certainly the momentum that takes place during a campaign is going to be a lot more important than whatever takes place before a campaign. So is momentum a real thing in polling? Uh, you know, I think you need to think about it in the sense that it is a real thing in public opinion and polls pick it up. Uh, but uh, there's not really a reason why what a pollster is picking up in the polls itself has its own momentum. It's based on what's happening outside and the polls can contribute to it. You know, the NDP in 2011 probably would not have seen such significant gains outside of Quebec if Canadians outside of Quebec were not aware of how the dynamics were shifting in that province. All right, this week we're continuing our refresher on the results of the last few elections by going back to the 2008 federal election. This was held on October 14th. By the fall of 2008, Stephen Harper's Conservatives had been in government for nearly three years. The Liberals were led by Stéphane Zion, who had replaced Paul Martin in the December 2006 Liberal Leadership Contest. The third and fourth parties in the House of Commons were still led by Gilles Duceppe, the Bloc Québécois, and Jack Layton of the New Democrats. Elizabeth May became the new leader of the Greens in August 2006, replacing Jim Harris, but the Greens did not have a seat in the House of Commons that they had won on their own. They did have a floor crosser just before the 2008 election. Heading up a minority government, Harper decided to call an early election, sound familiar, kicking off the campaign on September 7th, 2008. The campaign would be largely dominated by the financial crisis, but the polls hardly shifted. The Conservatives never lost their lead, and the Liberals never really picked up any of that momentum that I was talking about earlier. Support for the NDP, the Bloc, and the Greens was also pretty steady throughout. This was one example of the polls not really shifting around. Not every campaign has these big movements, and this was one of them where things more or less were at the end of it as where they were at the beginning of it. When the results were finally counted... The Conservatives had won 143 seats, so they were still short of a majority government, but they were up 19 seats over the results in the previous election. They had about 38% of the vote, and that was up about a point. The Liberals dropped 26 seats to 77, and just took 26% of the vote, a drop of about four points for them. The Bloc Québécois was still the third party in the House, with 49 seats, down two from the last election, whereas the NDP had a bit of a breakthrough, up eight seats to 37. They took 17% of the vote, which was up about a point. The Greens uh, were still kept without a seat and took about 7%. This was up two points from the previous election. Now, the Conservatives won British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba, just as they had in 2006. But what was different here is that the Conservatives moved ahead and won the popular vote, as well as the most seats in Ontario, New Brunswick, and Nunavut. 
In British Columbia, they jumped seven points to 44%. That was a gain of five seats. This was primarily in the lower mainland. In Ontario, the Conservatives jumped up four points to 39%. This was a gain of 11 seats. These were gains in Kitchener-Waterloo, in the GTA, in York, Mississauga, Oakville. But they still had a lot of work to do because they were shut out of Toronto itself. Their vote dropped in Quebec by three points to 22%, but they still held on their 10 seats. They also tanked quite a bit in Newfoundland and Labrador. This was the anything but conservative campaign for Danny Williams, and they just took 16.5% of the vote in, in the province in this election. They were up four points, however, to 39%, and they took three extra seats in New Brunswick. So you're starting to see the coalition that gave Stephen Harper a majority come together here. More gains in the BC Lower Mainland, a couple extra gains out in Atlantic Canada, and starting to win those mid-sized cities in Ontario and making up a little bit of ground in the suburbs around Toronto. So it's starting to come together for the Conservatives. The opposite's happening to the Liberals. They dropped quite a bit, and the only provinces they won were Nova Scotia, PEI, and Newfoundland and Labrador, as well as Yukon. They dropped eight points to just 19% in British Columbia. They were down four seats there. And really killer for them was that they were down to 34% of the vote in Ontario. This was a drop of 16 seats. Uh, they did gain one seat in Quebec, though. Um, so this was a little bit of a, a shift that suggested, wrongly as it would turn out, that maybe the liberal uh, decline in Quebec was was being arrested. Um, and they also gained two seats in Newfoundland and Labrador, again, because of uh, the influence of that provincial campaign. The NDP, the only place they came ahead was in the Northwest Territories, but they did have some breakthroughs in Alberta, Quebec, and Newfoundland and Labrador, each winning a seat in those provinces, which was uh, something new for the NDP, with the exception of, of Tom Mulcair winning that seat in Outremont, a by-election in 2007, but winning a seat in Quebec in a general election. And this was something new for the New Democrats. So you could see that the pieces for the NDP were starting to be put into place here, where the party was no longer uh, so much just the one that was on the edge in the corner of the House of Commons, but was starting to gain a footprint throughout the country. In Ontario, for example, um, while they dropped one point in the popular vote, they actually gained five seats, primarily in northern Ontario. But here you can see the NDP's momentum um, starting to build a little bit. No one was seeing tw 2011 coming from these results for the NDP, but they would, in the end, foreshadow a little bit of their future success. The Bloc Québécois was still uh, the first party in Quebec with 38%, and they won the most seats. The Liberals were back in second, so things looked fine for the Bloc, but they had dropped under that 40% mark, and uh, it wasn't going to go well for them in 2011. Results cost Stéphane Dion his leadership, though Stephen Harper, Jack Layton, Gilles Duceppe, and Elizabeth May would stay on. Dion would be replaced by Mike Lignatiev, and the second minority government for Stephen Harper would come under some pressure with that coalition crisis in December 2008. But Harper would hold on until May 2011, when there would be the next federal election. And that'll be it for the podcast this week. Thanks again to Sabrina and Angie of Queen's Park Observer for joining me earlier. And thanks to all of you who have subscribed to TheRit.ca. If you haven't, you can head to the site and subscribe to get access to all the content, including bonus podcast episodes. All right, well, till next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>